0: Hello again and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. You can follow us at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter or you can find us at mediagratii.org podcasts and sign up to our weekly newsletter where we... Uh, identify which sermons we're reading in a particular week and also send out a copy of the featured sermon, which this week is 498. It is a sermon called The Gladness of the Man of Sorrows. It's taken from Psalm 45 verses 7 and 8. You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. All your garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made you glad. It was preached on the 8th of March, 1863, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It's also preached as a a proper counterpoint to some of the other sermons that Spurgeon has been preaching. And if you've been reading through the sermons weekly, you'll have come across a number of those in the preceding sermons he's been considering the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. We followed him, he says, through the agony of the garden, the sorrows of the betrayal, the weariness and slander of his various trials, and the shame and mockery of the soldiery, and the sorrows of his cross-bearing progress along the streets of the city. Now those are properly weighty matters. What Spurgeon wants to do, he says, is to pause take breath a while in your pilgrimage of sorrow to be comforted by a view of the glory land to which the thorny pathway leads. So here's some sensitive pastoral preaching. He's aware that at least part of the sustained diet of the congregation may have uh, perhaps weighed upon their hearts. And now he says, okay, it's good that it should do that, but let's also look up and see that glory land. Let's take a a glimpse at what lies ahead, lest we be overwhelmed by sorrow now. For the man of sorrows is the fountain of all joy to others, and is the possessor of all the joys of heaven and earth by virtue of his triumphs. So we need to keep our eyes upon that also. We don't want to lose sight of it. And the text describes, says Spurgeon, the joy poured forth upon our glorious king. He's made joyous by his father. You love righteousness and hate wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. But there's another joy, which he doesn't get from one person, but from many. Read the next verse. All your garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have made you glad. So both saints and angels unite to swell the ever-deepening and widening river of the Saviour's gladness. So we're looking at the joy that the Father gives him and the joy that the church brings him. And those are the two elements of the text. Now I have to say as we set out that uh, Spurgeon is in one of those uh, moods we might say where he's just bubbling over and it seems that his thoughts, although ordered, are nevertheless running fast in various directions. And so it's not, again, as we sometimes say, not the most polished of sermons, but rather a little less polish and a little more life. And that's uh, what we're finding here as we study this particular sermon. It's a lovely example of of a proper way in which a preacher's heart can bubble over in discussing uh, such topics as these. So let's dive in as we uh, see what Spurgeon has to say, first of all, about the joy that is given him by his father. And uh, lovely to think of this as well, because uh, even Spurgeon's sermon, The Gladness of the Man of Sorrows, I remember hearing a particular preacher, um, and he said it, as far as I could tell, reasonably often, used to hammer home the fact that you, you, you never really see Jesus smile in the Gospels. I'm thinking, I think that may be so, but there is, there is humanity, there's humour, there's clearly delight and joy in some of the common blessings of God. His point always seemed to be, ah, oh, the man of sorrows, the man of sorrows, the man of sorrows. And it's true, but here's the gladness of the man of sorrows. Here's the joy that sustained him, given him by his father. And, says Spurgeon, think about it in terms of the fact, first of all, that he possessed this joy, our Redeemer, even while he was here on earth. As he grew in wisdom and in stature, he grew also in favour with God and man, and favour with God and man would probably give the youthful Jesus an unusual degree of holy happiness. It's right to think of him growing up under the smile of God with joy in his heart. Yes, he lives in a sinful world. Yes, he's becoming conscious of the work that lies before him. But there is delight in being the son of his Father. Spurgeon talks about the the, the witness bearing of the Father, the blessing of the Holy Spirit, the the ministry that he had while he served in this world. He says, Do you think that our Saviour did so much good without receiving some joy in his acts of mercy? To teach, to labour, to make men holy, that must give joy to a benevolent mind. He did good. Is not in the doing of good joy to be found? And he must have known the joy not just of doing good, but of being good. For there's a deep gladness in holiness and a a blessed peacefulness in righteousness." And you have every reason to believe that our Saviour permanently found a solace while on earth in the consideration that he was doing his Father's will. He said, it's my meat and drink to do the will of him that sent me. So often the Father proclaimed his good pleasure in his begotten son, only begotten Son and the work that he was doing. Did that not bring delight to the Saviour's soul? He had with him the presence of God until the moment of necessary desertion. For the first and only time we find him crying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I delight to do your will, he said. That was his declaration. Your law is within my heart. There was joy in obedience. And then, not just in terms of what he had while here upon earth, but while here, the glorious prospect which the great work opened to him when it should be completed. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. You, you can turn to the 22nd Psalm, says Spurgeon, the soliloquy of Christ upon the cross, and you find him comforting himself with the prospect of what lies ahead. A rich anointing of gladness then, says Spurgeon, rested indeed on the head of the man of sorrows. But what about then after? What about not just the prospect, but the reality? After he's endured the cross, after he's despised the shame. Consider, my brothers, the work accomplished, says our preacher. Christ has borne the wrath of God. God is reconciled to his people. Death has been destroyed. Christ has risen from the dead. The dragon's head has been broken. The powers of sin have been subdued. Our Lord ascends to heaven with a shout, with the trump of the archangel. The glorified spirits accord him a triumphal entry. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. He sits down upon his throne at his father's right hand and then it is that he is anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Now, Spurgeon then just reminds us I'm talking about him as a mediator. As God, he always possessed fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. But in his complex person as the God man, that's what we're concentrating on. That's how he's spoken of preeminently in this psalm, which Spurgeon is handling. Lovely little note there, where he's just making sure that there's doctrinal accuracy, uh, even in the midst of this experimental effusion. So the joy of the risen mediator then, and and now he starts just to use some of that language a little more, just to press it home, laid first of all in this, that he had now accomplished a work which he'd meditated upon from all eternity. This is now accomplished. He has finished transgression. He's made an end of sin. He's brought in everlasting righteousness. His purposes of redemption have been realized. His heart had not only meditated upon that work, but had been mightily set upon it. It wasn't just that he'd contemplated it, there wasn't just a sense of anticipation, there was this earnest desire to accomplish it. It has been in him like coals of juniper, unquenchable, and is now fulfilled to the uttermost. And then, says Spurgeon, compare the pains which he endured and consider that the, the joy must be commensurate with the pain. It must answer to the pain. If these are the depths to which he descended, what must be the heights to which he has climbed? If these are the sufferings, what must be the glory? and remember too the enemies he had overcome. He had worsted death. He had broken the head of the old serpent. Satan has fallen before him. The prince of darkness is cast out. Oh Jesus, mighty conqueror, your glorious victories must surely give you, as they do to us, a blessed anointing with the oil of gladness. So he sort of tries to pull some of this together. Since his heart was love, his joy must be in deeds of love. And as he's become a fountain, always welling up with loving gifts toward the chosen sons of men, his delight must be unchanging like his nature and unbounded like his divinity. And this is where he kind of starts uh, sparking off in different directions. Well, we've tried to talk about the joy now think about the cause of it what lies behind it you love righteousness and hate wickedness therefore god has anointed you he loves righteousness the hallowed sincerity and integrity of his life the constant effect of his work there's this positive delight in what pleases god it's a a, a pleasure in that which pleases his father and he loved righteousness when he emptied out all his heart floods that he might make us righteousness. It's, it's there in his life. It's there in his death. It's there in the consequences of his work. The gospel makes men righteous. It magnifies that which is pure and lovely and of good repute. Wherever the Lord Jesus yields his gracious power, sin yields the throne Purity wins the scepter. Grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life through the perfect sacrifice, the living power of Jesus. And then you flip it. You delight in righteousness. You love righteousness. You hate wickedness. A man's character, says Spurgeon, is not complete without a perfect hatred of sin. In fact, you cannot love righteousness and not hate wickedness. If you say, I don't hate wickedness, then you don't love righteousness. As warm then as Christ's love to sinners is, so hot is his hatred of sin. As perfect as is the righteousness which he completed, so perfect shall be the destruction of every form of wickedness. He is the glorious champion of right. He is the great destroyer of wrong for this reason God has anointed him with the oil of gladness above his fellows. And then he says, now what about the comparison, the character of this joy? It's more than others. Are we talking about the kings and princes of the world? Well, he's above them with regard to this anointing in gladness. "'Where where are you going to find his his fellows, his rivals?' asks Spurgeon. "'You search among the wise. "'Who shall match the gladness of incarnate wisdom? "'For man's wisdom brings sorrow. "'Go and travel among the famous. "'Who shall be compared with his illustrious name? "'Where else is there a name so full of joy? "'Search out the mighty. "'Who has an arm like his? "'Go and search among the good and excellent "'who have blessed their kind by philanthropy. "'Who among them so anointed?' As the man of Nazareth. His point is whatever you think of as a point of contact, even if the saints are his fellows and he's not ashamed to call them brothers, then the oil of gladness was first poured on Christ's head that it might descend even to the skirts of his garment and that all the saints might be made partakers of his joy. So whether these are rivals or companions, Christ is anointed with joy. He has joy beyond all all his his companions or rivals there's a a fullness of joy here there's a, a a height of joy there's a depth of joy and it belongs to Christ preeminently as the lover of righteousness the hater of wickedness it's bestowed by God the Father upon him who delighted to do his will who has seen the travail of his soul and is satisfied it's This is that bubbling up then of the preacher's heart. But, says Spurgeon, remember, it wasn't just God who gave him joy. He derives joy. He is brought joy by his church. And this is where he turns to the second part of his text. All your garments smell of myrrh and cassia and aloes out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made you glad. His garments have been saturated with these fragrant odours. This is the work of of his church. The saints' graces, he says, their love, their praise, their prayers, their faith are like myrrh, cassia and aloes and the Saviour's garments are so perfumed with them that when he rides in his triumphal chariot he scatters sweet odours all around. It is a great and certain truth and we need to, to pause and ponder that Christ finds an intense satisfaction in his church. Now, sometimes it is hard for us to believe that. We see so much within us that is ugly and and repugnant even. And yet Christ finds an intense satisfaction in his church. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over you with singing. Why? On what basis? Spurgeon suggests, first, as the objects of his choice, he finds satisfaction in his people. Nothing in them naturally, but he has chosen them and loves them. Nothing in us could have been the origin of the Saviour's first delight in us. Now, doubtless that we are his workmanship, he takes delight in the work of his own hands. But when we were like broken potsherds, thrown away upon the dunks, upon the dunghill of the fall if he saw anything in us it must have been in his own eyes so it's sovereign grace that first brings him this delight but then he says you know that people take a great interest in that which has cost them dearly so since that triumphant day when jesus stretched out his hands upon the tree and paid the price for his people he's found an infinite solace and delight in them Oh, consider that, Christian, that what Christ has done for you makes him delight in you all the more. He sees in every believer's face a memento of his groans. He looks into the eye of every penitent and sees his own tears there. He hears the cry of every mourner, and there hears his own groans over again. He beholds the reward of his soul's travail in every regenerate heart, and hence, as the purchase of his blood, we make him glad. And again, love how he heaps these things up. This is is his uh, typical approach, these different elements that he draws in. As his workmanship, as he sees us day by day more conformed to his image, he rejoices in us. The work is being completed, not now in the absolute sense of having redeemed, but in the more uh, progressive sense of continuing to bring us into conformity to himself. And the more that he sees that work advance, the more Christ-likeness he sees in your hearts and lives and in mine, the more joyful and delighted he is. We're his brothers. We're his spouse. We are one with him. It's a mutual joy in one another. So he says, think how you can make him glad. Oh, our love to Christ. We think it's so cold, so little, and so indeed we must sorrow- sorrowfully confess it to be, but still it is very sweet to Christ. We can never compare our love to Christ with his for us, and yet he does not despise it. What about our praises too, when from our hearts we sing his name, and when gratefully though silently we breathe up a song to his throne? Or our gifts... He loves to see us lay our time, our talents, our substance upon his altar, not for the value of what we give, but for the sake of the motive from which the gift springs. It's not how much you can do. It's not uh, how gifted you are in itself. It's the spirit in which you do that which you do for him. So to Christ, the shouts of his people are better than the cheers of the most enthusiastic populace. And he's drawing here on the, uh, the image, imagery of a, uh, of a recent royal pageant. To him, the lowly offerings of his saints are more acceptable than thousands of gold and silver. Forgive your enemy, you make Christ glad. Distribute of your substance to the poor he rejoices. Be the means of saving souls and you give him to see the travail of his soul. Preach his gospel, you're a sweet savor unto him. Go among the ignorant and the hopeless and try to lift them up, you have given him satisfaction. So when Christ looks upon the, the hearts, the words, the works, the intents, the motives of his healthy people, there is joy in him because of the church. And now uh, Spurgeon does again something that's reasonably typical for him. There are times when he seems to be swallowed up in his own holy imagination. I think I see a great procession. Uh, you'll if you've been reading along with us you'll find him doing this from time to time. I think I can see this. It's as if these things are set before me. Uh, the preacher, taken up with his theme, has by the gracious work of the Spirit in him this this sort of Uh, growing vision now we're not suggesting it's some kind of a prophetic word. But there's this intense grasp that the truth has upon him, and he enters into it entirely. He sees Christ then, riding along through the tens of thousands of souls whom he's redeemed with his own blood. I think I see him looking to the right and to the left as he rides along the centuries. The windows of every age are crowded. Glorified spirits look down from the housetops of heaven. The church militant looks up from the streets of earth. Multitudes upon multitudes of souls that love him and call him king salute him as their redeemer. His eyes in this great procession are bright with joy. Yes, the prince and the princess were happy yesterday, but their joy is nothing compared with that of Christ as he rides along in triumph. So this royal wedding that's just taken place, Spurgeon's drawing upon it, it's a lovely demonstration of how we can properly use current events to to inform and to enliven our ministry. He says, the multitudes delight their Jesus. One thing that Christ feels as he looks upon the crowd around him, which the prince, the human prince, couldn't feel yesterday. He knows that every one of his people would lay down their lives for him. Of all those whom Jesus bought with blood, among those who are renewed in heart, there is not one who would not bleed for him. And so he's he's lifting up, as it were, from the, the, the royal procession, beforehand the day before the saturday and he's saying but but what christ does and how christ feels puts this to shame just beggars all sense of it it's it's a it could be easily mimicked in an unhelpful way but how often do we so ponder our texts that we're taken up with it if we are preachers and so for his conclusion, he goes to the fourth verse of the first chapter of the Song of Solomon. He says, another text, but not another sermon. We will be glad and rejoice in you. So here's here's that lack of polish and that... Uh, let's not call it an excess, but that demonstration of zeal and joy. He's he's reaching every which way to try and cover all his territory. God has made the king glad. The saints have made the king glad. Let us be glad too. Let us uh, bear in mind uh, that our... Sorry, let us mind. Let us take account and be careful that our gladness is of the right sort. We will rejoice and be glad in you, Not in our property, not in our merchandise, not in our wealth, not in our jewels, not in our beauty, but in God. In God in Christ and most especially in his love to us. You you look upon Christ, you you enter into his heart, you see his joy, you consider its cause, its source in God himself and in the saints whom he has purchased with his own blood and you can enter into that. Blessed be your unexampled love, O Saviour. We will rejoice and be glad in you. But he says some interpreters read the text, Do you love me more than these? And Jesus speaks today to us and and now these applications, he's pressing it home as he concludes, I have loved you more than these. Your mother loved you, strong were her pangs, but I've loved you more than these. Your, Your brothers loved you, your sisters, but I've loved you more than these. Your children have loved you, but I have loved you more than these. A dear friend perhaps has loved you, but I've loved you more than these. Again, Here's the imagination. I think I hear him say to me, there are some in this congregation who'd pluck out their own eyes to give them to you. They love you, for you are their spiritual father. But I have loved you, Spurgeon, more than these. And he points to all the good men that have ever tried to teach you, to all the comforters who have ever given you joy, all the helpers have ever aided you. So he's, Spurgeon's now turning this. Is it me? Is it you? Is it us together? I have loved you more than these. And he says, consider that love with which he's loved you and rejoice and be glad in him. I have nothing else to rejoice in. The Lord knows, he says, I cannot rejoice in myself. Too many sins and too many doubts, but I will rejoice and be glad in him if he loves me like this. It's he's finished the work for me. He's given me a perfect righteousness. Again, here, here he is. He's just taken up with his topic. He's he's taken up, not with a, a doctrine, not with an idea, not with a sermon, but with the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, there's a glad Christ in heaven. There's a glad church on earth. There's a Christ anointed by his father. Here are his people sharing that anointing. Here is Christ giving you joy, you giving Christ joy, Belt the world with happiness, fire zodiac with joy. Lift up the ladder of your songs while the bottom rests on earth. Let the top reach to heaven. And ye angels of God, hold fellowship today with God and with us through the joy and peace which God the Father gives us while we rejoice and are glad in him. And remember, his closing point. No joy but in Christ. A poor mockery is joy which is found elsewhere. But Jesus Christ is to be had and whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So maybe not so much polish. Oh, but what sweetness, what beauty to consider Christ in this way. The one anointed by the Father, the one who delights in his purchased people and the one then in whom we find all our joy. I trust that uh, looking at Christ in this way, the anointed of the Father, the one who delights in his own accomplishments for the glory of God and the good of others, brings joy to our hearts. Meditate then upon his love to us and may that stir up our love to him and our joy in him. I trust it'll be a blessing to us as we continue to do that and then God willing next week sermons 500 to 506 and our featured sermon we're looking at Grace Abounding, sermon number 501. I hope you'll join us then. Thank you. My name is Jeremy Walker and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information, And to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.